make we make a terrible duo on the golf course, by the way. If uh, <laughs> anybody wants to take money off us, uh, they do it very easily. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that Joyce likes golf. Um, there's a one, actually, if you want to understand mm. Joyce and Beckett in uh, the cut to the quick and get to the actual essentials of it, uh, go on YouTube and watch uh, Joyce and Beckett play pitch and putt, yeah. which is around three minutes that sort of explains everything you need to know about James Joyce yeah. and Samuel Beckett and yeah. pitch and putt. And Enloyd's husband as uh, James Joyce. Yeah. Right. Samuel Beckett was a six handicap golfer and played cricket for Ireland. Mm -hmm. And of course, was James Joyce, the secretary at one time, as we know. And the payment he received for it was Joyce's coat. He asked him at a dinner one night, he was working up the courage to ask the great man for the payment that he was owed. And uh, he was trying to find a way in and eventually he blurted it out, you haven't paid me for the, the work I've been doing on Finnegan's Wake. Have I not? And he stood up and took his overcoat off and put it on mm -hmm. Beckett's shoulders and said, there's your payment. And Beckett describes walking through Paris wearing James Joyce's overcoat as your payment for, how can you wear the great man's and uh, anyway, that was a thought that was in my head about you and your, you know, in a way, if you've taken James Joyce's clothes and put them on, maybe not in the order that he expected uh, or whatever. <laughs> no, uh, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm taking off the hat in, in case it's James Joyce's, you know. <laughs> um, to take on the, uh, I suppose, as a writer growing up, an Irish writer growing up, you sort of shy away from James Joyce's Dublin writer because he's such a colossal world figure. Mm. And uh, so I remember like giving a lecture at the James Joyce Summers, the first ever James Joyce Summers School run by the late Gus Martin, a wonderful wow. man uh, who tricked me by telling me that there was a football match in which Ireland, Ireland would play the rest of the world and I'd be the Ireland captain. He didn't tell me that uh, Ireland would consist of a load of Irish-Americans who'd never played football and the rest of the world would all be young Spanish, Italian and Japanese <laughs> who were brilliant. And he lay on the side of the Ivy Gardens laughing and, and abusing me in words that not, you would, they wouldn't even hear in Night Town in James Joyce. But I remember doing a lecture called Shift Your Shadow and Abortion. It was all about like, trying to break out of the shadow of James Joyce. Uh, and, but in some ways, He's this huge figure that you have to, um, at some stage, um, look at head on. And, 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 and I suppose as, as every generation of writers is trying to make their own space and create their own sort of uh, city. And I, I was, there was a foreign journalist who came to Ireland used to ask me if I lived in James Joyce's shadow. I lived in Duncondra. I still live in Duncondra. <laughs> and I used to point out the window and say, I, I do, because um, the house in which he lived during, uh, which he describes a portrait of the artist so well, the, the house in Milburn Avenue, uh, directly backed onto my house. And, and in the garden of Joyce's old house, um, an old man called Chris Kelly, my wonderful neighbour, who came up the garden with flowers on the night we moved in, uh, had printed the first edition of Bungalow Bliss. And so the two most important books in Irish culture, Ulysses and Bungalow Bliss, came together in this, in this one house. <laughs> And uh, so, you, but, but, but so there was always that sense of. Yeah. But what was interesting about that house was that, um, to me, my mind it was Chris, 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 it was James Joyce's house. But then the the Lawlers who played football for Ireland and the Bohemians mm. had, had lived there in the forties, and it was to all people it was Lawler's house, and then to other people it was, it, 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 was, it was Kelly's house, and so it was always it was a house occupied by different generations of yeah. people, and the city was the same way. You were trying to create your own city, uh, mm. but at the same time, it, it, it's what was, so what was extraordinary when I came to adapt Ulysses for the stage for the first time about 23, 24 years ago, was the realization of just how contemporary Joyce remained, mm. of just how the prejudices, 
just the um, the opinions, the humour, the sort of um, all those aspects of Dublin life still existed. Mm -hmm. It was still a very contemporary book. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and even like when I, the first week of the first previews here in Dublin um, for this play, you actually had this um, discussion on anti-Semitism at the British Labour Party conference. Uh, and so that was a very sort of uh, real thing along when I think when that was forced there was an outbreak of the, of the foot and mouth disease which echoed Mr DC's letter on, 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 on foot and, mouth. and and perpetually you just felt that this was a city uh, that although the geographical landscape had changed mm. that at a certain heart it was the same city mm. interestingly because when I think of Dermot and Dermot has already adverted to the fact that we play golf occasionally together but interestingly on the issue of you know the connect the connectivity to that world, to the real mm -hmm. world, as it were, which is what the book is about, mm -hmm. this, 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 this exploration of a day in a city in which he wants to tap into everything mm -hmm. and start of drawing on all this stuff. I remember um, reading in Beckett's letters, uh, the, the letters of the 1950s, um, a student in UCD wrote to Beck Beckett suggesting that himself and Joyce must have been very interested in Leibniz, the philosopher, mm -hmm. and Pascal because mm -hmm. their stuff. And, it was a very long letter to Beckett anyway about the philosophers and existentialism and all that. And he said, how often did you discuss these topics with James Joyce? And Beckett wrote this seething letter back saying, Joyce and me never discussed philosophy. We never discussed those kind of subjects. We discussed horse racing, sport, mm -hmm. football, <laughs> the important things in life, you know. You know, the, the, the tactile, the things that, you know, like last night's game or whatever. Like, you know, was Joyce connected in the way that you're connected to, to Dublin, or is it a I think he had, he had his, his antennae out to everything that was happened in the city. And, and, and even, I mean, horse racing becomes obviously a, bit, a motif and thing. And, and that also the that pastiche of sports reporting sort of walks its way into Ulysses. And um, I, 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 I think if he was aware, but I, I think the social class that he primarily wrote about didn't, didn't uh, would be but more tended towards rugby than towards uh, the back of the fullback than towards football. But I think he understood the whole city and uh, I think he was fascinated by the city. I, I, I met Brian Moore once, the um, writer from Belfast, mm. and he said something interesting. I only met him once for like mm. five minutes in Edinburgh. I mean, he was a very, very courteous and hospitable man. Mm. And he left a great impression on me. Uh, and he said that he actually hated Belfast. And because of this, Belfast only gave him around three novels. It gave him the Look at Ginger Coffee, it gave him The Emperor of Ice Cream, but he was desperate to get away from it. And once he was away from it, was desperate to move away from it. And so that's why all of his uh, novels went, you know, they, they were set in Haiti, or they were set in sort of all these strange places, or Black Rob and things, because he didn't have that. Uh, emotional connection to a place, so that the novels are quite ruthless. And it's funny how Brian Moore has become almost a forgotten figure from one of the most successful Irish novelists of the, of the 20th century, where he said, Joyce, in contrast, although he got out of Dublin as quickly as he could, uh, he actually had a deep, passionate love of Dublin, and that sustained him throughout his life. There's famous stories about when people visited uh, Joyce uh, abroad. He used to play a game, uh, walking up Talbot Street, he called it. So left and right, you had to name each shop as you walked up the street. And he was so interested in this game that he used to, he had, um, what's that directory? Tom's, Tom's, Tom's directory. directory. He had the Tom's directory, so he would learn off by heart 
the, the changes mm. of the names and the shops and you know like and when I was a kid Talbot Street was the street that I went up mm. so I, when I learned that Joyce was interested in that I was interested because McHugh himself was the toy shop when I was a kid I will never forget what that shop looked like and I'm, I, I don't think it was there in Joyce's time mm. but interestingly that was Joyce's big thing this obsession with this city that we live in. How many people here have been to the play in the Abbey? Because as you know, Dermot has adapted uh, Ulysses for the stage. A very, very fine adaptation it is too. Anybody who hasn't seen it and can get tickets, I really urge you to go because it's a fantastic production. And it's very radical what you did in the adaptation. Because you, you, took, you took huge decisions, I, I feel, that really, really worked in terms of the theatre. Because Ulysses is a book of 900-odd pages, 800, 900 pages. So you would think to adapt that for the stage, you're going to have you know, four three-hour plays or six two-and-a-half-hour plays, and you've encapsulated it in a much shorter span of time. But and by leaving an awful lot out, and, and, I, and I think that because of my novels, because of my plays, it's, mm. the difference is very interesting between them in that it, there are no minor characters in Joyce. In Ulysses, every character is a fully rounded mm. major character who has their entire backstory sort of walked in different ways or alluded to or anything else. And, and you could write 10, 12, 20 plays about Ulysses. You, I mean, mm. I mean, I mean uh, Josie Green would be a play, or, mm. or, or the erotic correspondence would matter. Uh, Clifford could be a play, or there could be so many plays. And so you actually have to go on. Um, but, but, the, but the luxury of being a novelist uh, is that you can actually have. Your novel can be like a forest. It can have all mm. these branches that go out in all these directions. Mm. The thing of being a playwright, you, want, you enter a, a pact with the audience and also a duel with the audience. Mm. If the audience get ahead of you, mm. you're screwed. Yeah. You actually have... It, it's, like, it's like being a playwright is like having air in a balloon mm. and having your hand on, on the balloon. Mm. And, 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 and if you release it too much... It goes out, and you can see. I remember the first play I ever wrote was a play called uh, *The Lament for Arthur Cleary*, directed by a very fine director called David Bourne, who's mm. who's the somewhat forgotten figure now, mm. who was very influential. Once he did me and Marina and loads of other people for the first place, and um, he was immersed in tears, which I didn't fully understand. Mm. And he was t- trying to tell me about a certain speech in one the play, and mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out what he meant. And I was young, and uh, I picked him up by the by, by his lapels. Mm. And I said, that I'm going to hold you here by the wall, David, and in, you have 10 seconds to tell me what you mean in plain English, I'm going to drop you. This is a very effective way to actually speak to the directors, by the way. And so David said, put me down, put me down, put me down. And he said, he opened this page, he said, this speech here is absolutely beautiful. It is the most stunning piece of writing I have, I've ever seen. I was so moved by this speech. This bit here, and he went to the end of the third sentence. He said, this is where the person in the third row of the theatre begins to wonder if their Volvo is safely parked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the best introduction to playwright I ever understood. And sometimes I go to plays, uh, plays in the Abbey or plays at the Gate or anything else, and the actual, the author has the audience, the Pamela Hand, mm-hmm. and then they try to get them in Pamela Hand a second time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, and you can see all the people, all the men of suits doing this. And they're all checking to see if they have their ticket for the Irish Life car park. It's just like this wave to the theatre. I don't know. And so you really have to uh, make decisions as a playwright. Mm. Le- le- leaving it out that, that you're adapting somebody's book, it, it, it's got to work as a piece of theatre mm. because it's in an environment, it's, it's, it's in a theatre. And so it, it's, 
adapting any book is very difficult. Adapting Ulysses is virtually impossible. In fact, I, I actually toned down um, when I, I, was, I was asked to do it because um, a very good director called Greg Dolan, who is the director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, had done a version of The Odyssey by Derek Walcott, and he wanted to do a version of Ulysses. And he phoned me up and asked me to do it, and I said no. And he came over to Ireland to try and persuade me, and I said no. And I was still saying no. Uh, we had lunch in the restaurant, but under the writer centre, above the writer centre, whatever, the other centre. And uh, mm. I began to explain, you couldn't do, you couldn't do, you couldn't. And then I began to write on a napkin the ways that just if you, if, although it couldn't be done, that if you were doing it, mm. you would have to take Molly's soliloquy and you'd have to break it up because it was such an overwhelmingly powerful piece of writing that it would unbalance the book totally. Mm. And you'd need to have Leopold Bloom dream his day backwards. And that was the only way that, that, that you could have the freedom mm. to be able to, to go into these tiny fragments of the play mm. because uh, dreams have their own logic that, that, mm. that, that don't have to follow a natural pattern and you, and you can move the characters around inside the dream. Mm. And uh, somehow, when, when, we, when I left the restaurant, I discovered that I had signed a contract to actually adapt it in Philadelphia six months later. You know? <laughs> but it was a, a book that, that, that you shied away from that because it's in some ways, no matter... But I think the, what's great about Joyce is that no matter what I do to him, or the director does to him, or some other adapter does to him, or some other director does to him, or filmmaker does to him, I mean, Joyce is so powerful that no, no matter what we do for good or for bad, it makes a little difference be, be, because the work is so monumental that it just will, will always stand there. Yeah. And all you can do is know that you are going to, uh, like, to take his line about failing better, that, that to, to, to fail as well as you possibly can in adapting him. Which you've alluded there, and I, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who's going to go and see the show, but the master stroke of this adaptation is that you've, you've taken Molly and you've interspersed her throughout the first, particularly throughout the first act of the play, so that we keep going back to Molly, who feels like she's the heart of the story. Um, and the other thing that really becomes really significant, because in a, in a, in a, in a book of that length, even important stories can get lost. And the story of Rudy, who's the dead child of the Blooms, they've lost this boy, Rudy. Now, that would be a particularly relevant story for me because I lost a brother. I lost a brother when I, was, when I was a kid. So whenever I read stories or read books where there's a dead child, I'm immediately drawn to it because it's my story. Shakespeare the same, Hamlet. Shakespeare's kid dies when he's 10 or 11. And in, they, they say that Shakespeare was trying to get over the hurt of that when he wrote the plays and that, you know, that's, that's what the thing was about. And you have m managed to place the Rudy story in such a prominent place in this adaptation in a way that it doesn't have in the book. Mm. And it becomes incredibly the, the, the motor of the play. That the play is kind of, you understand the, the, the trauma in a way that Leopold Bloom is living through with, with carrying around the knowledge that he's had, he, they have. Well, this, I, I, this think, I think it's trauma that that uh, and Molly are both are both there, and and, and and I've seen. We all know people who've lost children, uh, and the, it can be so hard to move on from that. And in some ways, you, it, it, it freezes you at a certain moment, as all loss freezes you, and all grief freezes you. And I'm trying to, to get the, but but this is only my interpretation. But but it, the, I've adapted this this a couple of times over the years. Mm. Uh, and that has become more and more central to me, that, that, that understanding of just what actually sort of unites them mm. as a couple and divides them as a couple. Yeah. 
and uh, and means that that, that even even if, if, if all love was gone between them, which I don't think it has in any way, they would still be bound by grief and they'd still be bound by something that they cannot speak of. And in time when particularly men don't speak of their feelings and you, you, you have Bloom being, being, being mocked for having feelings in um, Barney Cannon's pub. And so I, it, that, that, that became the good... But again, this is as a, as a, um, somebody adapting it as a playwright, you've got to find those things that actually bind the people together. So, I mean, it, 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 it is disproportionate, the grief, of the role of Rudy in the play is disproportionate to the role of, of Rudy in the book. But you're always going to have to make those, those decisions. Mm. You know, I, mm. I'll say, well, will, will I follow Stephen? Will, will, will I follow Leopold? Will, you know, all those things. So there's all those decisions. Can be made. I think that that's a great thing with the book, that somebody could come along, do another adaptation of this tomorrow, and it, it, it might barely overlap. Mm. Yeah. Woody Allen uh, famously said that all good stories are in a hurry. And I think what he meant by that is if, if something you've referred to already, which is don't ever let the audience get ahead of you. Always try and be one, two, three steps ahead. And in a way, one of the difficulties and one of the problems of something like Ulysses, as, as a text is, it's very self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very easy to get lost in the miasma of, mm-hmm. you know, that, like Roddy Doyle famously said, that if Ulysses was published now, it would be kind of half its length. The editors would insist on stripping it right back, maybe now, in a, for a modern audience. Um, is it too long as a book? I don't think so. I, I, I think it is... I think that Joyce was doing things with the English language, that, with language full stop, that had never, never been done before. And that he, he was walking every thought, every movement every bell and every sort of uh, emotion of this day, of these characters in this day, into this book, and that it was a monumental achievement. And I sort of think that it's a book that even Joyce himself knew that he, knew that he couldn't repeat, which is why Finnegan's Wake is such a different book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- I, 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 I think that sort of it was, it, it's an astonishing achievement. I think that it, it, funny thing, I think it's sort of, when I began, and one of the reasons why I think early on I was saying, as a writer, I was trying to provide Joyce with that, I did sort of meet the remnants of a generation of Irish writers who in some ways were destroyed by Ulysses, in that they tried to, you know, when I, at the age of 17, I was going out into pubs at 16, 17, I was meeting these geniuses with white beards who had had one experimental play performed in a phone box in Paris in 1956, and they, they said they made writing sound impossibly difficult and everything else, and some ways they were. So they, it was almost as if after Joyce they couldn't write an ordinary simple novel. They needed to write a masterpiece or nothing. Be, be, you know, and, and in some ways I, 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 I met quite a number of very talented writers far older than me mm. who almost were wiped out by trying to live in the shadow of that mm. book, which is yeah. why you need to create your own space. Mm. But I, 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 I think if Ulysses was written today, it would be the exact length. Mm. Did you have any one singular idea or thought in your head or a scene or a moment or something about the book that you always wanted to get out there that you wanted to explore something from that book because it comes across as a very focused play the book is not focused in the way that you focused it I think I think it's far and away the best adaptation of Ulysses I've certainly seen in my lifetime, I've seen quite a few. I, I think it, it's definitely the best adaptation of Ulysses who's winning in Dublin at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it really has, you know, 
it's because it has this fantastic focus. And I'm just wondering if you had, I think, you know, if you had a mission, because, you know, the first three chapters are five minutes of your play. Mm. That's a radical decision to take, but I actually think it's a brilliant decision because chapter four, the start of the Bloom story, is the heart of the book. Mm -hmm. And in a way, you've had the bravery to say, I'm actually not that interested in chapters one, two, and three. They're just a kind of a starting point. This story really begins with Molly in the bed, and then Molly stays there in that bed throughout the first act, and we keep cutting back to her like in a good movie. And every time we go back to her, she's funny, she's earthy, she's cracked, she's funny. So she gives the, the story this centre that it obviously doesn't have in the book. So you've been radical in what you've done. And I'm just wondering, was that an idea you had before you began that you would be that radical? I'm not sure. I think the most, the bravest thing that I ever saw on the stage in Dublin was Rosalind Lenehan in a one-woman show by <laughs> Jennifer Johnston in the Peacock Theatre in, I don't know, 1995 or something. And it was a small house. It was a lovely little play by Jennifer. There must have been 50 people in the house. Uh, she came on. She sat down on a chair. She began to do the play. And, and 90 seconds in, she looked at her and said, do you know what? She said, I've got off on the wrong note here. I'm going to start again. And she walked off stage, waited 10 seconds, came back on stage, and was actually brilliant. First standing ovation when I was running. And I, I, I only met her once in my life. And I said, do you, do you remember that day? She said, I never did that before. It was just a one occasion. I, got, I, got, I knew I had to start again. And so, so sometimes, um, and it inspired that, just that moment inspired me to rewrite a novel of mine called A Second Life that I published in, I can't remember, 19... 1994 or something, or 1993 or something, and, and I always felt that I'd never, I got off on the wrong foot, I, I, I'd mm -hmm. got, I'd, I, 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 possibly it's never good to begin a novel by um, uh, having a stage vegetative nose uh, inject uh, a large quantity <laughs> of hallucinogenic drugs into your left button in a, in a deconsecrated Protestant church inside <laughs> Bench Gorman, which I did for research, so the novel, maybe the novel began by being, but I, the novel got away from me. Mm -hmm. And years later, I went back and I rewrote it. I think one of the, one of the, the uh, there was two things about the Abbey production. One is that I mean, there's a director involved, and, and Graham has done a fantastic job on it, and this is very much Graham's vision of it. And, and so in the, in the end, in the same way, as I have to make, make my version of, of Joyce, Graham has to make his version of my play as well. So I mean, the, 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 those are, so, so those, the, a lot of what happens there is, is very much his work and very much his invention mm -hmm. and, 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 and ideas that, that he sort of brought into the, brought to the table that were really interesting. I mean, like there, there were no puppets, say, in my uh, original version mm -hmm. of, of the thing. And, and I, I, I took some persuading and then, and then I saw how they work so well. It's uh, used in a very, very limited way. But when I first adapted it, um, this is the original version, which um, I, I found on the bed. And it's much, much too long because I'm trying to be very, very conscientious. I'm trying to be like, I'm almost like a senior counsel in, in a court case, and I'm trying to, well, we must have some of this scene, we must have some of that scene, we must have all these elements of it. And so uh, it was done in Philadelphia, but we were only allowed to be done once in a, in a 1,400-seater theatre, and it was, that's all the stage would, would allow, and then it, it went into limbo for years. And um, so in some ways, when I went back to do it again, I didn't go back to the novel, I went back to my adaptation and I realised that I had written it with one hand tied behind my back as a playwright because I was trying to answer the demands of theatre. 
but also I was trying to appease the Joyce estate and trying to appease that, yeah, and trying to, you know, so it wasn't, I, I, this original version didn't I, really work as a play because it tried to be too dutiful to the book. Mm. And so the second time around, and the third time around, I said, no, this is, I'm, I'm actually now, Joyce's Ulysses is there, it's a great novel, and my job is to try and make mm. people go back to reading the novel yeah. or make people who have never read the novel want to read the novel. Yeah. And, and so, I, I, again, <coughs> so I, I probably cut out another you know, 20% of what's here out of it. So each time it's done, it gets smaller and smaller, it gets shorter and shorter. But as it focuses in on those human... Basically, I think when you read a book, as an individual, any book, there are certain emotional stories will will resonate with you, and they're the ones you will remember from the book. And so I, I tried to work on the premise that the things that emotionally moved me most in the book would emotionally move other people. Mm. And I also tried to keep in mind um, Noah Barnacle's great complaint that uh, James Joyce kept her awake at night laughing as he wrote it in those years of poverty in Trieste and, and sort of, and that there was a humour there, but there was also you know, great emotional heart and depth. Peter Brook, I remember watching him on TV it was a, a profile of him and the interviewer asked him what's the difference between theatre and film and he gave the best answer I've ever heard to that question because it's a question that I would have grappled with I'm sure Dermot's grappled with we, we've both worked in television or, or film and, and theatre and, and Brooke said he said if you put a, a series of ropes on a stage and you have the actors walk through them the audience go oh that's a forest and they feel really smart really intelligent but if you filmed it and showed it to people, they'd say, why didn't you film that in the forest? <laughs> because the camera can go anywhere. The thing about film is camera is mobile. It can actually go wherever it wants to go. So you're not restricted. So the language of theatre sometimes is a very strange thing. There's a moment in the first five minutes of the, of the adaptation in the Abbey which reminded me of Brooke's answer. And I think it's the reason why... It, the adaptation and the production works so well. The, the play is done what we call in the round, which is the audience are on both sides of the action. So it feels like a promenade. It feels like you're part of the action in a way you're not if you're in a theatre that just has a proscenium arch stage. It's, it's all around. And during this sequence, one of the actors stands up on a circular table and he starts to do intro evo ad altari dei, which is the opening of the scene in the tower at the beginning of the book. But he's standing on a table He's not on a tower. And you're looking at it and you're going, that's really, really great. Because he's not pretending that he's standing on a tower. He's standing on a table. But he's creating the sense of, I'm on a tower, or this is a section from the and book. There's, there's, so the there's language, three people sitting at a table. Yeah, the way as and well, there's so three members of the audience sitting at this table. So you suddenly feel, oh, this is actually a story that's that close to you. It's right on top of you. It's not something you can get away from. So it feels in the production terms that the world of Dublin, 1904, 16th of June, is there happening and it's, it's touching off you in a way that you don't really get that feeling very often with something as big, as monumental, as vast as Ulysses because it slightly feels distant. I mean, when you pick up a book at 900 pages, you're going to go, shit, there's a lot of reading in this. So you have to actually have a marathon staying power to stay with the book. In the theatre, you've got two hours to tell the story, so it better be visceral and it better be connected immediately. And I think this production 
brilliantly achieves that in the first five minutes of the show. But I, so I, 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 I can't that's, recommend that's, that. Some of that is down to my distillation of the important, what I feel as, as, as a way of navigating through the main story. But mm-hmm. primarily it's down to the director, to Graham, and to the Abbey Theatre and taking that incredible... It's, it's, I, I, I was joking that I actually, you know, I've been a playwright for 27 years. I had plays in The Gate and The Project and The Peacock and different countries and the world and the theatres in London and all the you know, translation. I've never, I've never been, been on the Abbey stage. And when I finally got there, they they'd taken the shagging stage away because <laughs> <laughs> there is no stage. And so, and, and, and that was an incredibly courageous decision by Graham and by the Abbey to actually literally take the stage out to play the Abbey in the realm, which, which I've never seen, and maybe you've seen a play in the realm before. I've never seen a play that way. And actually, to have the audience on stage and to have no separation really between the actual cast and between the audience. And in some, you know, what Graham said to me earlier is that there's such a fear in the book that we want to make almost like a cabaret production. It's almost like people are going into a cabaret thing and there's music and, and there's singing and there's sort of, there's, there's, there's a piano on stage and to, to, just, just to, to relax people. Yeah. And so I, I think those early things of, of, of doing something, of someone standing like, on a table, literally with inside of people, of all those various things, Bloom stands up in the toilet. But it just made me realize this is, this novel is a masterpiece, uh, but this is a play, and this is a play about the human heart of that masterpiece, and it's okay to laugh, and it's okay to cry. And, and, and there's, there's one particular scene in the uh, play where a couple of times I've seen people in the audience actually crying, and, and people are very moved by it, and, it, and, and all those emotions can be felt. But, but I think as long as people are sitting back saying, oh, we're going into a masterpiece, we're not going to understand, uh, I, I think there's that, that barrier is there. So yeah. I think that the Abbey took incredibly courageous steps in actually literally yeah. reshaping the theatre for this production yeah. uh, to actually break down that, that, yeah. that, that barrier that's yeah. always there between a cast and an audience. Um, one of the stories I often tell, especially to secondary school students who sometimes I talk to about Shakespeare, schools sometimes get me in to talk about, because Shakespeare is difficult, he's not easy, and certainly in my going to school, Shakespeare, f- for me, was a, a huge turn-off. I just, you know, teachers talk about the poetry. and Drama's not about poetry. Drama's about a visceral connection thing. It's not about people spouting poetry. It's about people who are flesh and blood. And as soon as you kind of feel like you're saying a poem, you're not flesh and blood, you're some material thing. So I, I never got the Shakespeare thing in school. I didn't get it until I left school. And when I left school and I started to discover Shakespeare, one of the things I discovered about him was how vulgar he is. Shakespeare's an incredibly vulgar writer. There's a lot of stuff in Shakespeare that is very, very vulgar. I don't want to get too personal here. But, you know, it, you know you, you've got the porter in Macbeth, who's extremely vulgar, talking about, you know, trying to get his penis to stand up, and he's drinking too much, and it won't stand up, it keeps falling down. And, when I discovered that when I was an adult, I'm kind of, kind of, kind of, no wonder they didn't teach this in school. Like, how could you teach this in school? You look at Othello, the racism we talked about, we were talking about earlier on, the racism that you get in Othello, you know, where he's described as a big black man or a big dick, and, you know, he's, he's fucking sheep and all this kind of stuff, and you're kind of thinking, wow. And Joyce has the same similar fascination with the kind of the vulgarity of life, you know, that life is terribly vulgar. There's, this, there's many scenes which you don't shy away from. You have, you have Bloom on the toilet seat, and, uh, and, you know, and Molly obviously talks a lot about the functions of her female body and stuff like that. 
Um, and definitely Shakespeare enjoys have that thing in common, that they're interested in the vulgar, you know, the vulgar things of life. Because in a way, they're, you know, the sewers are part of what we are. We're just above them, but they're down there beneath us. You know, and the shit's flowing away, and he's really interested in. Well, I, it, I, I don't it, think I don't think neither. It's like puerile or it's still done for effects or anything else. Not I, it's done because this is part of who we are. I remember uh, publishing an incredibly difficult poet called Paul Salan, who was um, a Jewish um, German poet who survived the concentration camps and wrote some of the most powerful poetry of the 20th century, and some of the most difficult poetry of the 20th century, and then drowned himself in, in, in Paris in 1970, I can I remember uh, Peter Jankowski, who's dead now, and Brian Lynch doing these versions mm. of his very latter poems that even Michael Hamburger hadn't translated into thing. I remember like getting one of them, and it was like, the world, the world, at every fart, my shaven-headed woman. And that was the entire poem, and I'm just looking at what in the name of Jesus is that? <laughs> And then I said, yeah, you know, what I'm saying is that he's breaking humanity down to this, to this, you know, this most, the last living vestige, and yet all humanity is, is within that, and so the whole world is, is, is within that moment. And I think Joyce uh, and Jake and all great writers are aware of all the contradictions within uh, humanity, and so you actually have... Uh, those things which are only vulgar because we still need to be vulgar and you actually have all the humanity and all the depth of um, uh, emotion and repressed emotion and stuff as well. I mean Joyce had the same connection to Hamlet in Ulysses, those questions that Shakespeare raises in those things you know Um, and again I go back to they both suffered the loss of the child you know as as a kind of a, a driving force that kind of connects them together what makes you happiest about the currents? Is it the level of is it the level of the bo- talking about Rosalind Lennon, whom I had the pleasure of working with quite a few times, and worked her on, on a play called Mother of All the Beans, where she played Kathleen Bean for me. Lovely, lovely, lovely. But Ka- Rosalind is it what, what we call a trooper in the business. You know, she's been around for a long time. She's done the shows that worked, the shows that failed, as we all have done. But I always remember her, her answer to a question she was asked once: "What's your favourite thing about the theatre?" She said cues at the box office. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good answer, and you definitely have cues at the box office. Well, we have, I mean, the, the show, the show is, is selling out. Yeah. It will be fully sold out, except for fact it, it's slightly confusing on the box, uh, on the website for the box office, because there's so, mm-hmm. and then there's also these other tickets on sale mm-hmm. separately for the, the bank area behind it and for the, for the stage. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes it looks a little, yeah. actually, so there's always like one or two spaces there. They even turn mm-hmm. up on the, on the night you'll probably get in. Yeah. The, the reasons, like, the, one of the reasons for the, the, um, the, 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 the hiatus in this play is that when Greg Doran asked me to adapt it, um, it was meant to be in the Abbey. I was meant to be in Dalmar Warehouse in London. Mm-hmm. And I was meant to be everything. And then the European Union, because Joyce has gone out of copyright, and then the European Union changed the law that went from um, 50 years to 70 years. Mm-hmm. And suddenly Joyce was going back into copyright. And then there was, there was no point in really pursuing the play after uh, the Philadelphia production because it, it, it sort of was on, going to abeyance. And, but I really wanted to, for me, doing the adaptation, writers are lazy people. And so uh, <laughs> I, when I go to schools, I say to kids, um, I bet you you do your homework on a Sunday night. And I always, I, you know, as a writer, you make a living in seven or eight different ways. And one of them is that I do book reviews. Mm-hmm. And so I always wind up 
at like 11 o'clock on a Sunday night, writing the book review, <laughs> you know. Oh, when I, when I did a television column for um, Vincent Brown and Vintage Frank, you'd be doing that on Saturday. It was, it was like doing your homework. It's like you never get to leave school, you know. And so you actually sort of, uh, in some ways, but, but you won't do it until the last minute. And so in some ways, I, I, I realised that the only way I was ever going to really, fully, truly engage with Ulysses was to accept the, the invitation to adapt it. And so at the end of that period, as the book was going back into copyright and I figured it would never be done again, I said, well, it was still really worth the experience to go and, and, and do it because it really gave me a, number, a new understanding of the book. And the day before the copyright law changed, I had a production of it. I say a production of it. I got 13 of my friends, Alban Burry played Monty and uh, Michael West played uh, Stephen, and we did it, uh, Fierk McNeil gave us a loan of the project. I put it in the Irish Times, it's happening at the, the, the world premiere of the, <laughs> at, at 9.15 in the morning, and I figured that no solicitor could get there before 9.15 in the morning, and we read it, and we wanted to get two men and a dog, and we just couldn't get a dog because it's really hard to work with children and animals in the theatre, but we, 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 we got two people in the audience, and we read it and it sounded really good and I said that's been at least it's been done in my native city it's been done in Joyce's native mm -hmm. city and that to me it was like the end of the journey and I, I remember like we all went and, and, and had lunch and it was a really lovely day mm -hmm. and I felt that that was the end of the thing it would never ever mm -hmm. come back again mm -hmm. and so uh, you know Cubes at the box office is lovely but just simply seeing that something that that basically lived for a quarter of a century under my bed uh, suddenly be in the Abbey Theatre uh, and, get, and get its recognition. And it's funny, things take time. As a writer, yeah. when you, very often young writers bust, bust in and you read the paper, somebody has got this massive advance for a yeah. book, and very often you, you never heard them again because they're so overwhelmed by that. And you realise that things take a lot of time. But the, I had a novel called The Journey Home that was, um, uh, was quite controversial when yeah. it was published here and sold a lot of copies here and in England and France and Germany and Sweden and the But it, it took 18 years for it to publish in America and it was a tiny American university press publisher and it wound up getting the front page of the New York Times book review which for <laughs> it be the equivalent of a musician getting the cover of Rolling Stone except that musicians and Rolling Stone have more hair than their standards than me yeah. but, the, the, but it, that took 18 years to happen and you realise that things take a long time, and like, and so it, to me, the, the the thing is the satisfaction of, of having lived long enough to see something that I put my heart and soul into over twenty, over, almost twenty five years ago, yeah. suddenly playing in the Abbey Theatre in front of large crowds who are enjoying it, and, and who hopefully will be will will will, will not understand everything about Ulysses having coming out that no more than I will understand everything about Ulysses uh, no matter how often I read the book yeah. but will come out hopefully with an appetite whetted to go and, 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 and tackle that book again. The central core story of it is an absolutely brilliant story but it has never kind of been condensed in the way that you've done and you've gotten a production with a director who's kind of brought it to a very interesting place on production terms and I think now is the time it's going to be really, really appreciated by a much bigger audience who don't have the time or the staying power to read the book. It's very hard to read a novel of 800 pages and stay with it. It really is. And now this is an accessible thing. And I think people are going to see that Joyce is incredibly funny, incredibly vulgar, incredibly brilliant, incredibly intellectual, incredibly connected, 
I think the time has come. I think this production is going to change the perception of James Joyce in our society in a way that never happened before.